Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York is Bill Lee, now chief economist at the Milken Institute, as I mentioned, formerly head of North America Economics at City, and before that uh, with the IMF in Washington. Great to have you here uh, with us. Congrats on the, the new gig uh, as <laughs> well. And let's let's start with the, the tax reform package that we got yesterday from the White House. Uh, before the press briefing began at 1.30 Wall Street time, uh, Gary Cohn and the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin passed out a one-pager, as they called it. Uh, just about 200 words on one piece of paper outlining what they uh, would like to see in a tax reform proposal. What did you see there yesterday? What was different here? How does it compare to what the president uh, was talking about when he was a candidate well, on the campaign trail? Well, David, what's great about it was that they reaffirmed that they're really committed to doing tax reform and, and reducing corporate tax rates. I, I mean, we were starting to question that, especially given that he didn't seem to have the political capital to get the uh, the medical stuff through and, so, so, and, and getting rid of Obamacare. Of course, that gives him a lousy baseline because he now has a higher expenditure level, right? But but one of the things that I, I took away from that also was that the, the adults have to come back into the room and guide policy. We have to tell the policymakers in Washington, namely the Senate, right, and, and the House, that we have tools to raise revenues and we have to use these tools. Now, border tax is something that everyone's telling me is dead and done. Um, but where are they going to find a trillion dollars to fill the gap? So, so it, it can't be totally dead and done. And so the stuff that I've written and talked about here before is that we have to have a realistic analysis of what this border tax can do. And what it can do is give you that revenue because you won't get that exchange rate offset instantaneously. And that's where I think our profession has done a poor job in explaining to the policymakers exactly what the prospects are. I, I think historically we've seen that the exchange rate doesn't move in response to these export-import taxes and, in, and current account shocks for several years. So that means during that time, we're going to get boost uh, boost to exports and, and holding back imports. Now, it's going to be costly. And that's what everyone, the politicians say, my God, Walmart, you've got all these uh, importers that are going to be up in arms. Well, what, what did we learn in international trade? Everyone is better off with trade if you do what? If you tax the gainers and subsidize the losers because we come up with a package that makes everybody better off. So that means that we have to, during this transition period, while, as the exchange rate starts to appreciate, tax the, the winners, that is, the, the, the Boeings of the world, the exporters of the world who are exempt, who all of their revenues are exempt from taxation, and, and, and help pay for some of the costs that the importers are facing. And I think that would re- alleviate a lot of the problems. Now, you can't, doing this transfer program doesn't mean another bureaucracy setup. So what you do is you put some exemptions and phase-ins for the border tax, but it lets you start to raise revenues and lets you put in place mm. the lower tax rates. And that's really key, lower tax rates and broadening the base. There's something elliptical here, isn't there that uh, the White House is saying, don't worry about the deficit. If we impose this, this reform to tax policy, we're going to see growth. If I'm a, a first-term or second-term congressman in Washington uh, talking to constituents and saying, look, I have to have some blind faith here that's going to happen, 
I might be worried they'd be a little skeptical of that of that taking place. How much blind faith is required here to, to get that 3% growth that Steve Mnuchin talks about time and time again? That's a hope and a prayer. There really is a lot of faith. Now, yes, you're going to get a couple of quarters where you might get 3% growth, but sustained growth of above 2.5% requires technology to kick in. And technology is something that isn't kicking into increased productivity for some mysterious reason. The Part of that mysterious reason, actually, I think, is because of regulatory environment. We don't have the, we have a regulatory environment that doesn't, in, inspire the use of capital to, to, to create investments that boost productivity. Instead, people are looking for ways of pushing dividends and stock buybacks instead of investing. And that's really the key. Did you like Blind Faith? You know, the cream was so damn good. <laughs> that, I mean, cream was outstanding, and they went off and they did this Blind Faith thing. I never oh, forgave Clapton for that. All right. Did you? Well, Blind Faith, Hope and Prayers, I mean, that's the, that's the stuff of which new administrations are built. But you have to come out with some real plans, right? And real well, plans yeah, means revenues. LBJ and Richard Nixon had real tangible political plans with the House and the Senate Back in 1969, when Blind Faith started. And how did LBJ get his stuff through? Because he knew where all the skeletons buried, because he buried some of them. Can you make the statement that that, that Donald Trump is no LBJ? Is that too too strong of a statement? Well, I think uh, McConnell is no LBJ. uh, And and so he can't get the number of skeletons out to convince the the Democrats, especially Schumer, right, to come along and and be part of the plan. And and, and I think that's where the opposition is. And that's why the Republicans have to resort to the so-called reconciliation, right? A a nonpartisan or or a one-partisan, one-party approach to to passing uh, tax reform. William Lee with us at the Milken Institute, their chief economist. Good morning, everyone. I just, I interrupted there, David. Excuse me. I just was... (laughs) Captain about Illusion. blind Captain faith. Illusion, yeah. I never, yeah, cream was just so damn good. I never forgave him for that. <laughs> oh. Bloomberg surveillance this morning. David, why don't you consider or continue? I look back at my record catalog here. Yeah, but you, you've, you've written so much, Bill, about the border adjusted tax. And we heard from the House Speaker yesterday saying when you look at his plan versus the White House's plan, there's 80 percent agreement. Do you think that the, the border adjusted tax is in that remaining 20 percent? Do you really think that this thing is dead at this point? Or do you think it's something that the White House could come around to? I think it's dead until somebody explains to the White House how it can work. I see. And, and, and right now, there's no one who's really got the vested interest to explain it. And I'm, I might be the only lone voice out there that says, you know, it's a reasonable thing. But, you know, there are some bad things that come with this border tax, right? Which which if the, the current analysis is right, which means, you know, if the exchange rate appreciates very rapidly, what's the one thing we're guaranteed to see? Turmoil in the financial markets. Why? Because the holders of dollar assets are going to be cheering and saying, wow, we, we're making this windfall gain. Well, who the hell are those people? Mm. They're the Chinese, <laughs> right? So, and, and, and who is it that's going to say, my God, I just lost a ton of money. It's the Americans that are holding foreign assets. So, so do we really want a rapid exchange rate appreciation? Absolutely not, because that means a, a huge uh, uh, wealth transfer abroad and everyone's going to be selling like crazy, and that means financial market turmoil. So if the Holtz-Aiken-Albrecht the analysis is right, they should be ringing the doorbells and saying, sell, <laughs> because you're not, you're, the market is going to go crazy. And, and I think that's why they're wrong. Okay, because- that's the currency dynamic. But our heads are spinning. I mean, just the NAFTA thing last night. Uh, Dr. Holtz-Aiken – Joining us tomorrow, by the way, I should say. Oh, I did not know that. Thank you. (laughs) I'm the the last to hear anything around here. Uh, Wonderful that uh, Douglas Holtzikin will be with us tomorrow. And as he said, this is a fairy tale that they're dealing with tax reform. Do you see any credible tax policy out of this one-page proposal? 
Yeah. Uh, if you don't have a way of raising a trillion dollars of revenues, that means you don't have any prayer of 15%. Do you see proof in your research, your wonderful academics, your work at the IMF, your and work Fed, with you know. Professor Bowder at the Fed, <laughs> whatever, excuse me, but do you see any proof that you could guarantee growth off of tax dynamics? No one has ever shown that. No one has ever shown that, period, right? But tax dynamics is a key ingredient to increasing productivity because it incentivizes people to do the right thing. But you need a re the regulatory environment to, to go along with it. And right now, with all the Dodd-Frank and CCAR requirements, we're not yeah. getting that. So we need a coordinated tax and regulatory environment. Did you, David, did you have to have a kale smoothie last night over the <laughs> NAFTA back and forth? My head was spinning. But, Tom, you know, why are we so obsessed with NAFTA when trade, let's face it, trade is a very important thing, but it's only 25% of the U.S. economy, right? Exports plus imports to the share of GDP oh, is 25 to 30%. The president, you know, whatever anybody's belief here, the president is fixated on NAFTA because his core constituency. Oh, absolutely. Is. But they're interested in job creation. They want good jobs. They don't want right. they don't want uh, a retail, health care, and hospitality to be the right. main source of job creation. And they think manufacturing is going to be the way by kidding, kidding, getting a new NAFTA. What yeah. we need is a tax environment that says... We have to have manufacturing in the U.S. That's not just trade-related. Uh, Bill Lee with us. We'll continue with the Milken Institute this morning. And, David, we have a guest from Washington, the president of the United States, tweeting out seven minutes ago, quote, I received calls from the president of Mexico and the prime minister of Canada asking to renegotiate NAFTA rather than terminate. I agreed. Yeah, uh, amending a, an official White House statement last night, which we quoted from at the top of the show, in which he commented on the phone calls, but uh, didn't indicate yeah. who called whom and, and it, said it, here it's his it privilege to bring up NAFTA. they wanted to terminate. I don't think that's quite Yeah, the case. that was not in the uh, initial statement from the White House. So. We are lucky to have an expert on this, of course, with his great work at Citigroup on border taxes. We talked about this before and we reviewed it, but with the president's uh, timely economic tweet, I, I, it's as if he's you, listening, you know, it's, a, it's as if he's chiming in on I'm cue. sorry, I go back to Jacob Viner, Chicago, zero-sum mercantile. That's what that tweet looks like to me. Are yeah. we nudging away from the Washington consensus of Uruguay, of GATT, towards... A mercantile world. I hope to God we're going away from the Washington consensus because the world has moved away from it. The world is no longer a trade between nations, the way Adam Smith described. It's a trade between companies. And companies have these huge supply chains that associate with it. And so it's very hard to see what, what countries importing what because we're importing and re-exporting. Agreed. God. So if, if that's the case, that means that we need a NAFTA-type treaty that deals with sector-by-sector, sector, almost company-by-company company type trade relations. Oh, come on. And that means that we need to have bilateral and, 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 and micro trade agreements and, and the kind of multilateral trade deals that we had in the past where a ton of countries got together and they were kludging stuff together just to fit some stupid farm subsidy okay. in some tiny little country. That's not appropriate. So for how a do US you do a multilateral trade. agreement with Caterpillar? Caterpillar has to be uh, uh, telling us, you know, these are our key trade relations. This is who we import and export to. We we have to have a way of adding that together and saying, what are the U.S. interests? And those are the yeah, but, bilateral kind of sets of, of, of deals we okay, make. But David, I'm sorry. This is a, a unipolar or bi binomial tweet. 
I've never said that. A binomial tweet. <laughs> it's on or it's, off it's or not. It's on or off. Yeah. It's a, a um, Alarian would call it a T decision. Because we don't have the vocabulary in place to let him say, hey, we need a more refined NAFTA, right? We need a NAFTA that allows us to deal with the companies the way we should and the sectors the way we should. What, what his objective is, is to maximize job growth in the United States and not just any job growth. You don't want healthcare, hospitality, and retail to be spurring all of the production of jobs because those are low-wage jobs. What you want are the high-wage jobs that we come from, a company that is okay. able to have intra-industry trade. And, and David, jump in here, but it's part du. Yes, John tweet. Tucker monitoring the Pick the it up. I, I agree. There's an amendment to the Subject to the <laughs> fact tweet. that if we do not reach a fair deal for all, we will then terminate NAFTA. Relationships are, are good. Deal very possible. Billy, help me with the time factor here. When it comes to tax reform, when it comes to trade, you mentioned all of these micro deals, the, the potential here for more bilateral deals. All this stuff takes so long. And I yeah. think a lot of dissatisfaction with what we saw yesterday was, look, we're close to 100 days in its administration. Steve Mnuchin said 100 people in the Treasury Department were working on tax reform, and this is what they produced at the end, a one-page document with 200 words on it. Uh, and there's still a long way to go before we get anything close to legislation. Because it tells you how far apart the sides are, right? And, and they can only come out with this one-page plan because anything else will be destroyed. Look at what they did to the border tax, right? You have Walmart and Boeing at war with each other. So one of the things that we have to do is settle and, and, and come down to the to the staff level and say, hey, let's find a way of getting this stuff together. And, you know, the, I, I hate to keep peddling the milk and approach, but the reason I joined the, the, this outfit is because their way of doing things is to put in place collaborative solutions. That means you got to talk to one another, and you have to have a platform that says, here's what we agree on, and here's what we disagree on. So far, we haven't been able to see, see that come out of the administration, and I hope that at least we okay. at Milken can do that. Like 30 seconds. Does the price of Corona beer go up because of the import tax? <laughs> a sense of compulsion to drink. It, it'll give you incentive to produce that beer here in the U.S., won't it? But Corona beer is not Corona beer if it's made in Altoona. So, you know, if they take over the old Rolling Rock factory, it doesn't work. Tom, better living through chemistry. All right. <laughs> better living through chemistry. I like that. Bill Lee, thank you so much for the Milken uh, Institute. Optimistic on, on the progress well. in Washington. I appreciate that. Well, this was well. very good. I'm still distressed about blind faith. I mean, you know, we have blind faith. Oh. And, oh, Mr. Winwood. Thank you, Ken Fellio. This will be wonderful. A little blind faith to get us to break. Billy, thank you. It is wonderful on tax reform to bring in Diana Furchgott Roth uh, of the Manhattan Institute, who has written consistently and been a strong voice for fiscal responsibility. Um, Diana Frischgoth-Roth, what is the next step for President Trump, uh, Diana? I guess we got a one-page document. What, what would you presume will be next? Well, the important thing is for Congress to come forward with uh, its own tax plan, and Paul Ryan has put out his plan. Uh, the Senate thinks slightly differently. They are not in favor of the border adjustment uh, aspect of the House plan. 
So uh, a tax plan has to start in the House Ways and Means Committee, be voted out, go to the Senate, uh, and then be conferenced in and sent to the president for his signature. So the president can encourage, uh, he can lead, but he cannot get that bill out of the House or out of the Senate. So the ball is really in Congress's court. President Trump has shown he is serious about tax reform, and it's up to Congress now to send him a bill that he can sign. Where's the, the demonstrable seriousness to this? Again, it's, it's such a, a short outline that we got yesterday. The rhetoric from the Treasury Secretary and the Director of the National Economic Council uh, is there that they want to do this, and that they, you know, they're, they're reiterating that the president's goal here is for more economic growth. D- does the action match the rhetoric, I suppose, is what I'm asking? This is very much uh, about signaling. Everybody knows that it is Congress that has to craft the tax bill. What President Trump is indicating with this is that he is firmly behind this effort. He is exerting a leadership role. He's rolled out this bill. But, of course, the details are always left to Congress. Uh, the House and the Senate have to decide, especially about this border adjustability provision, which Paul Ryan indicated he might moderate. Uh, and uh, so right now the president's role is not so much negotiating the fine details, but saying he is there, he is encouraging it. It was a massive publicity rollout yesterday. It was very much in accord with what President Trump said he wanted to do during the campaign, and he is reiterating that. Uh, there will be these three brackets if the president were to get his way, 10, 25, and 35 percent. There was a question from a reporter yesterday. Does the White House have uh, guidance when it comes to income brackets? Uh, Gary Cohn, the, the director of the National Economic Council, said, in fact, the White House does not at this point. Um, does that strike you as, as problematical? Do you think that they, they have those uh, guidelines? They're just not sharing them publicly right now? Look, this is not something that's up to the White House to no. do. Plus, the whole scoring is up to the Joint Tax Committee and the Congressional Budget Office. So even if they were to roll out, even if the White House were to roll out specific tax brackets, these would be liable to be changed during the crafting of the bill. Uh, I think it's also very important to note that the tax on pass-throughs on small businesses would go down to 15%, the same as the corporate rate. It's very important that those two rates are the same. Otherwise, small businesses would just be incorporating to take advantage of that lower corporate rate, the same way that the reverse happened in 1986. As you know, they're fighting the left-right wars, that everybody lines up about whether reduced taxes spurs growth. I know you're going to tell me reduce taxes spurs growth. Take the other side, Diana. Help me with the the people that say it's unproven. Where is it proven that reduced taxes directly gets you to GDP growth? In the 1980s, after taxes uh, went down, uh, we had growth of around 3 or 4% after the Reagan tax cuts. After the Bush tax cuts were fully implemented in 2003, again, uh, we had a lot of growth. And it makes sense that if there's a lower tax rate, people can invest in projects that have a slightly lower rate of return than they would have otherwise. So more projects and more investment would occur. Throughout the world, corporate tax rates have been going down steadily. The United States is at an exceptionally high level, the highest among industrialized nations, at 39%, including federal and state taxes. Our companies are inverting. In other words, they're becoming owned by foreign companies in order to have advantage of those countries' tax rates. It's absurd. We need to do something about it. We cannot be left behind. Do you as a pro parse and separate 
corporate tax analysis from individual tax analysis, or do you bundle them together? Well, we are going to get the biggest bang from the buck from lowering corporate taxes because that's where we are the biggest outlier. So that's where we're going to get growth coming back. In terms of individual tax rates, it's beneficial to have a tax cut, but we're not that much out of line with other countries. In fact, our individual tax rates are probably slightly lower than other countries. But where we're going to get the biggest growth bang from the buck is lowering our corporate tax rates, not just to lower levels, but also tax companies on a territorial basis rather than a worldwide basis. Only seven countries tax companies on a worldwide basis on their worldwide income because that makes it harder for our companies to repatriate their earnings. Diana Fritschkart, Roth, let me ask you about the, the repatriation tax holiday, the repatriation tax proposal that was uh, unveiled yesterday. Um, acknowledge that there's $2.6 trillion worth of earnings U.S. companies have uh, overseas. No indication here that all of that would be repatriated if this were to come to pass, how do you make repatriation uh, most efficacious? How do you how do you uh, incentivize or make sure that companies who bring back those profits are then going to spend some of it, at least, uh, on on capital expenditures? Well, first of all, we don't really have to worry what they're going to spend it on. We just want them to bring it back, and then we let them decide what to spend it on. And even if half of it were brought back, that's $1.3 trillion. Even if a quarter of it were brought back, that would be uh, a certain amount of stimulus. We certainly don't want to micromanage what companies do. And the way to make it most efficacious is to make the changes permanent so that there's not just a one-time jump, uh, but it continues into the future. We don't need to have uh, a Texas garbage disposal company merging with a Canadian one, as happened a couple of years ago. Uh, We don't need our pharmaceutical companies to become owned by Irish companies. This is not beneficial for the United States. And we continue with Diana Fritzkart-Roth with the Manhattan Institute. She is in support of a large part of the Trump agenda on taxes. Diana, the idea of individual taxes and doing away with this tax bolt-on, that tax bolt-on, how will that be received on the Hill? Uh, Well, the Hill, it depends if you're looking at the House or the Senate. The House is very much going to welcome this because it is in line with the House's own bill. Uh, The Senate is probably going to be less enthusiastic. And people keep talking about the House, but they need to remember that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has certain views of his own. Uh, So I think that the feeling in Congress is definitely mixed. Not only do we have the Democrats and Republicans, but we also have the House and the Senate. Well, take just as one the Obamacare overlay, the Affordable Care Act overlay, 3.x percent uh, on every, I believe, on every dollar uh, as you go up the food chain. And they want to get rid of that. I get that. But what, what will be the reception of that single idea on the Hill? I think that, in general, the uh, Republicans are going to be happy and the Democrats are going to be less well, Yeah, we know that, but can it get passed? So, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's going to have to be part of a larger package, but I definitely think that that can get passed. And I think uh, what's really important is to move these corporate tax rates down and to take away the worldwide taxation. Because if you think about it, say you're uh, Burger King and you want to bring back $100 million to invest from abroad in new Burger King restaurants, 39% of that 
hundred million minus whatever taxes you've paid is going to go to the U.S. Treasury. But then say you're Tim Hortons Donuts and you want to set up a chain of donut stores and you want to bring back a hundred million and you're a Canadian company. Every penny of that a hundred million can be used. So the quickest way for a company to maximize the money that it wants to bring back to the United States and make sure every dollar is used is to invert and become a foreign company. And uh, it should not be like that. We should not be so much out of line with the other countries. Let me ask you about uh, the role that health care reform plays in all of this. There was news yesterday that the Conservative caucus uh, in the Republican Party on Capitol Hill might be willing to support a piece of legislation there uh, re- reforming yeah. or, or repealing uh, the, the Affordable Care Act. How important is that for tax reform? Early on, during the first debate over, over health care reform during this administration, um, there was a sense that that had to happen first before tax reform could happen. Do you, do you believe that? How much easier would that make tax reform to have reform to uh, the Affordable Care Act in place first? Well, it's important for two reasons. First of all, uh, repealing Obamacare, as the Congressional Budget Office has shown, uh, gives Congress a certain amount of money that it can use to put towards reducing taxes because it saves money to repeal the Affordable Care Act, according to the Congressional Budget Office scoring rules, which are very important. That's number one. It gives them money to play with, so tax reform does not have to be deficit neutral. Second, it shows that Congress can get something done. That's an equally important message. Congress does not look very good right now, having promised to repeal Mm -hmm. the Affordable Care Act and not having managed to do that. Two reasons, very important. In your wonderful book, Disinherited, and folks, this is an emotional book. It really goes to the generational challenges of all this financial uh, blather. You have a painful first chapter called Unfunded Promises. Everyone listening, right, left, center, that's the number one worry is unfunded promises. What is the risk of tax reform by a minority-majority Republican Capitol Hill? What is the risk of that furthering our unfunded promises? If we don't have tax reform, we're going to have less business investment and lower tax revenues. So in order to propel economic growth and reduce the deficit and also reduce the deficit as a share of GDP, we absolutely need tax reform to get us to a 3% or even in some quarters a 4% growth level. Tax reform is absolutely essential. And at the same time, we need to be trimming entitlements. In today's Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, the Harvard economist Martin Feldstein proposed gradually raising the security, Social Security retirement age to 70, along with people's life expectancies for people who are younger uh, than 55. I very much support that uh, proposal, and we also yeah. need to be looking at cutting other entitlements also. Diana, thank you so much. Diana first got thrown with the Manhattan Institute. Her, her book is disinherited. I really can't say enough about it, how Washington is betraying uh, America's youth. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news stories, relevant market data from Bloomberg. 
In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. David Gura and Tom Keen in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. We've talked about trade a little bit uh, throughout the morning here. Obviously, what's happening with NAFTA or isn't happening with NAFTA. I want to get some perspective on what that means for corporations doing business both in Canada and the U.S. And who better to give us that than Brian Belsky, the chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets, of course, a Canada-based uh, institution. Brian, this news uh, came out a couple of days back, and we saw some movement in uh, home builders. First of all, I guess uh, there are mattress manufacturers who rely on wood from Canada uh, as well. How big an impact is this going to have, this new trade policy, at least preliminary trade policy from the Commerce Department? Well, good morning. You know, duties back and forth between uh, Canada and the United States are, are mostly annual duties, and this was just a, re- a lapse of the prior duty, and then you know, news and noise with respect to uh, a potential even higher duty. I think the stocks with respect to especially the paper and forestry stocks in Canada had little or no response to what happened with the duty because I think there was, again, fears and rhetoric and noise that the duties would be even even more so. So, you know, the market so far has got it right. You know, we've had a couple of stocks, or at least one come out yesterday uh, that had um, that missed their earnings but it had really nothing to do with duties. It had more to do with uh, what was happening with the underlying fundamentals. So at the end of the day, you know, I, I think that fundamentals should be the ones that um, – investors should follow. And uh, this noise of, of NAFTA being revoked or Trump not getting along with Canada or uh, fears with respect to the soft wood um, and soft lumber uh, accord in terms of Canada has really, has really uh, been more of a, again, non-event from, with respect to the stocks versus what everyone's talking about. When does that noise get so loud that you have to take notice? I was talking with the Secretary of Commerce, and he said you should take this as an example of what this administration intends to do going forward. It's very keen on uh, more enforcement than its, uh, than its predecessors. Uh, does, does it become problematic if we see more and more cases, more and more countervailing duties like these? Well, I mean, if you take a look at the the importance of the paper industry, the, the or the the lumber industry within North America, it you know pales in comparison to let's say the overall consumer side. You know, seventy percent of our economy is based on the consumer, and you mentioned about mattresses being made with some wood and things like that. But think about this: you know, housing starts have been uh, at. It, the, the housing start numbers have not been great since the since the credit crisis. We're starting to see a bit of a recovery, but nowhere near uh, the type of supply that really is needed to facilitate kind of the growth overall and what we're seeing. And number two, you know, Americans are going to pay pay that price for wood to get to get the job done. I think that's the difference. Again, what happens with technology companies? What happens with you know the GE and some of these other things that are going to happen. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, this is more tough talk with respect to you know trying to get uh, companies to come back to America, and they, and that has more to do with what's going to end up happening with the repatriation bill, and then of course moving through um, some of this new tax plan yeah. information. Well, I was with your BMO Capital Markets, the Bank of Montreal. I was ask, I was going to ask you about Molson Golden Beer and yeah. the trade dynamics. <laughs> 
We won't go there right now. Uh, let's take a bigger, broader view, Brian Belsky, in the time that we've got with you before the Draghi uh, press conference. We see all of this back and forth, the political swirl of the last 48 hours, the central bank swirl, the surprise is Sweden blinks, and they stay accommodative, little things here and there. We got to focus down any company's income statement. What do you observe in revenue growth and critically down the income statement from the first earning reports we've seen this quarter? It's a great question. You know, the love of the, the amount of cash that's coming coming off of earnings is actually pretty good, Tom. And yeah. you know, at, at the at the end of the day, this is about um, companies in the overall economy, you know, recovering. You know, IF, IMF data with respect to global growth has been solidifying. You know, I'm I'm going through kind of the the one page tax plan now to try to put out a note today to kind of give our view on it. At the, you know, at the end of the day, the, let the negotiations begin. You've put out a one page tax uh, piece of paper. This, you're building a template to build off of. You're not. This is the isn't the end all be all. And I think the investors that are looking for an end all be all are sadly mistaken because this is an administration and president that's running the country like a business. So he's going to have to sell this to the American people in Congress and hasn't even begun yet. So. At the end of the day, there's a lot more work to do, and, and so I think there's a big fear that, that the potential for tax reform has already been priced into the market. I don't think so, especially given that we think that stocks have risen because of fundamental reasons. If we start to actually see the implementation of lower taxes, that's when you really see the kicker on the income statement per your question uh, and comment. So we need, really need to see to get earnings going again, and for, from our from our lens and doing the actual work, earnings haven't really even started to, to reflect what the actualities of any kind of new uh, fiscal reform from the United States government. Brian Belsky, great to speak with you as always. Thanks for that perspective uh, from Montreal there on the countervailing duties that were announced uh, earlier this week. Uh, Brian Belsky, the chief uh, investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. We could literally spend three hours today speaking with David Rosenberg of Gluskin Chef. He has been such a supporter of my work here at Bloomberg over the years. It's been way too long since we've had Mr. Rosenberg join us. And I think, David, we've got to rip up the script and not talk about your and my beloved Montreal uh, Canadians. What a disaster that was. But rather talk about this renewed trade tiff between Canada and the U.S. Christian Friedland, the foreign affairs minister, made clear there was lumber one, lumber two, lumber three, lumber four. And as she stated, every time Canada wins, how will this change the debate in the, the trade and finance tone of these two nations? Well, you know, so far, uh, we've got two hot issues here. One is obviously uh, uh, the dairy situation, Tom, and... Uh, um, unfiltered milk and so on and so forth, and, and uh, supply management techniques in Canada have long been a source of debate even internally. Uh, and softwood lumber has been an ongoing uh, dispute uh, for the past uh, two decades. You know, um, you know, when we talk about how Canada has won, it's usually when these disputes on the lumber side end up going to uh, WTO and, and NAFTA rules. Uh, and we'll see, you know, what ends up happening down the pike. But here's the reality. Uh, you know, these trade issues make the front page news. And yet, when you take a look and you see what these tariff increases are going to mean for the Canadian economy, uh, it comes to less than 0.1% of a downward impact. But isn't so, it a symbol? Isn't it a symbol of, of a tension that can dampen the spirit of doing business? 
Well, uh, you know, I think sometimes you have to separate um, uh, the rhetoric and the action. Uh, I think that um, it's always been a, a, a big dispute in the U.S. about how mm-hmm. uh, the, um, you know, how, how what the producers in Canada on the software lumber side uh, get charged because uh, their trees come from crown land as opposed to private land in the U.S., uh, look, the reality is that this is very sector-specific. Uh, we've seen the U.S. in the past with a whole range of countries, whether it's steel in Asia or electronic products uh, in Japan. We've seen these targeted tariffs before, and not just by this right. president, but by other presidents as well. But no, I don't think it's going to trigger a, a, a wider trade war. Uh, uh, David, yeah, I, I hate to interrupt, but Mr. Draghi moving the markets. We've got a weaker euro, and German yields have moved substantially off of his comments. We have a lower German two-year and 10-year that negative German two-year yield, now negative 0.719, that's not near record lows. But there's been a real reversal in tone there towards lower yields and higher note prices. And I'd encourage you, if you have a Bloomberg, to follow along on the Top Live uh, blog. I'm doing that here, looking at headlines as they cross. Mm-hmm. It seems like he's getting peppered with questions uh, uh, about the French elections, about Mario Draghi's trip to Washington, D.C. for the IMF and World Bank spring uh, meetings. And he just said, we discussed policies, not politics. So he seems to be growing weary of having to respond to questions about uh, political events. David, let me ask you about sort of what the, the events of this week indicate to you about a broader trade policy from this, this administration. Uh, yes, it's sector-specific, but does it indicate to you um, directionally where this administration here in the U.S. is headed when it comes to trade policy? Well, look, I, I once again, uh, lots of rhetoric, uh, and uh, but we're in the 99th day, so uh, I think we have to keep an open mind. Uh, look, my sense is that um, President Trump ran on this uh, American first, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, mantra, and, and I guess that means everybody else in the world is tied for second. Um, but, you know, do I think this is going to spark a, a wider trade war? I mean, trade frictions globally are, have been simmering for some time. I'm not in the camp that things is going to spark a, a, a global trade war. The reality is that the rest of the world mm-hmm. still needs, uh, you know, the U.S. consumer to drive uh, a lot of their economic growth. So, you know, it, it really doesn't top my worry list. These are just very right. sector-specific uh, trade actions right Help now. Help Mr. Draghi now, who I know leans on Gluskin Chef literature. Parse <laughs> inflation right now, low goods inflation, higher service sector inflation. Nobody does this like you. What is the observation, the distinction in the inflation data in the U.S. right now? Well, uh, I think that we have uh, whatever cyclical inflation we had, that back has been broken time. Uh, firstly, uh, you know, core goods uh, pricing has been falling now for on a year-over-year basis for 13 consecutive months, 42 of the past 43. The inflation that we had in the U.S. that had all the bond bearers in a tizzy was service sector inflation, different principally by rents. And now that we've had uh, really a, a bull market in apartment construction this cycle, the vacancy rate is starting to go up. Rental rates are starting to come down. I think the big news in the past couple of months has been the break in the, uh, in the rental component of the CPI. Uh, my, my sense is that you know, in the next six to 12 months, inflation is going to be very close to 1%. I'm not so sure that's fully factored yeah, in. Yeah, and I want to bring, this is a really important research note from Chris Rupke at Bank of Tokyo, Mitsubishi, agreeing with Mr. Rosenberg. Rupke is a, a real optimist, David Gurr, and he really makes note of recent soft economic data. Just quickly here about, about the housing market in Canada right now. When you look at it, it regionally, is, is it confined to certain provinces in specific, the weakness in the housing market in, in Canada? Well, you know, Vancouver was in a super-duper bubble, uh, you know, till about a year ago. Uh, it's, it's cooled off somewhat, uh, still quite strong. 
but South Central Ontario, uh, I mean, not just uh, Toronto, but the greater Toronto area, which is now six, seven million people. I mean, it's the fourth largest metropolis in North America. There is a bubble in the housing market in the in, in South Central Ontario of epic proportions. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. When you're talking about, you know, three standard deviation events, when you look at home prices against rents, income, nominal well, GDP growth, uh, I mean, okay. this this makes the late 1980s look like a mock. L- looks like a walk through the park. Okay, we're going to go geometric here with David Rosenberg right now. My basic take on the Laffer curve, and I've interviewed Mr. Laffer three or four times, uh, Mr. Rosenberg, is that it depends where you are within tax regime on how effective or uh, uh, the efficacy of the Laffer theory. And if you've done a lot of tax reform over the years, it's less effective. It has to do with the first derivative of a parabola. I don't want to get into it. I don't have the math in front of me. Can the Laffer curve be effective where we are in a complex modern economic system? The short answer is no. And I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I don't even know why we're still talking about the Laffer curve uh, or how dynamic scoring is, is going to pay fully. Uh, for these proposed tax cuts. Just take the Ronald Reagan era, um, you know, tip our hat to the Gipper, but here's the reality. We all heard about uh, the Laffer curve in the 1980s. Uh, when Ronald Reagan took over in 1980, the deficit was 1% of GDP. He finishes eight years later, and the deficit is over 3% of GDP. Ronald Reagan starts in office, and the net federal debt-GDP ratio is 25% of GDP eight years later, it's 40% of GDP. I mean, of course, that number today is close to 80%. But how did the Laffer curve ever work in the 1980s, Tom? We had monumental tax cuts, even with 8% nominal growth annually. Those tax cuts did not pay for themselves. We finished with the federal debt GDP ratio under the Reagan era, 15 percentage points higher. So somebody has to explain to me how the Laffer curve even worked back then and what makes anybody think it's going to work today at even higher levels of the debt GDP ratio and heading into the tail end of the expansion. It would probably would work better if we had a lot of excess capacity and this was year one of the expansion coming out of recession. But how exactly is this going to work at 4.5% unemployment? How does fiscal policy work at the tail end of an expansion when the labor market is tight as it is today? How does fiscal policy work given the great fixed income distortion of the moment. Can you apply those models given where real and nominal rates are in this era? Well, look, I I look at it more as to um, what the actual level of the debt-GDP ratio is because the efficacy of fiscal policy at ever higher levels of the debt ratio dissipates quite rapidly. Just Let's just go back and dust off the Rogoff-Reinhardt textbook on the matter. Mm -hmm. You reach a critical threshold, call it uh, roughly 70%. We're already 80% net, 110% gross federal debt GDP ratio. The people that said that monetary policy loses its its efficacy at the zero bound were right. Every central banker knows that. Uh, But the people that thought that we were suddenly going to, with this new administration, pass the baton from monetary policy to fiscal policy, somehow dismiss that fiscal policy writ large is as tapped out at these debt ratios as monetary policy is. Yeah, it's almost a zero bound. We don't know where that is, David Gurrow, but you know, we've shown that chart a million times, moving from 33% debt to GDP up to 105 
percent debt yet to do GDP. Are you drawing first derivative parabolic curves over there, David? <laughs> With chalk on the your, blackboard. Your father's in awe. Yeah, exactly. Looking at looking at the loonie right now, one thirty-five at ninety-five. This is something that sort of caught both of us by surprise. Tom and I have talked about this over the, the last couple of weeks. What's your outlook for the Canadian dollar uh, at this point? Well, you know what's interesting is that if it was just about oil prices, the Canadian dollar would be closer to say, uh, you know, one twenty-seven uh, than one thirty-five, one thirty-six. Uh, but it's not there, and that's because the Bank Canada has deliberately been keeping Canadian interest rates below U.S. levels. And, and of course, look, we came off the detonation uh, to the energy patch, Alberta. That's yesterday's story. The Bank Canada cut interest rates twice as the Fed raised uh, rates. So I think the big surprise is going to be, especially with the uh, housing mania in, in many urban areas in Canada, especially Ontario, the fact, look at uh, very quietly, the Canadian economy right now is advancing over the past four quarters at a 3% pace. The U.S. is uh, barely more than 2%. Uh, the emergency is over. It's time for the Bank Canada to take back those two emergency uh, rate cuts. That would basically then help close the interest rate gap between right. Canada and the United States, allow the Canadian dollar to more fully reflect the terms of trade fundamentals. And I think that takes you back uh, below 130. So to be clear here, you lost so much money betting on the Montreal Canadiens in the Stanley Cup that you're making it up. Uh, you know, don't tell your family, but you're making up Long Canada. Is this what, 135 to 127? Or can you go further to 122? I, I think I think that um, I think you can go back to 122 under the proviso that, uh, and this is actually my call, that oil prices in the second half of the year gravitate to the high end of the 50 to $60 oh, range as opposed to where we are yeah. right now. Mm. This is a, an administration here in the U.S. that is so single-mindedly focused on trade deficits. What's yes. your message Good to question. one Wilbur Ross, a Secretary of Commerce, Peter Navarro, who heads up the White House Trade Council about trade deficits at this point? Yeah, you, you know, it's, a, um, it, it, it's, it's almost uh, laughable to talk about these uh, trade deficits. Uh, a policy to eliminate trade deficits. Why, why don't they come out and say, hey, our policy is to eliminate the capital account surplus? The trade deficit is just an accounting identity. The U.S. has a current account deficit, therefore has a capital account surplus. A capital account surplus, by the way, is money that flows into the U.S. from abroad that helps keep our cost of capital low, uh, that goes into real estate, goes into plant and equipment, that goes into bonds and stocks. So I would say, yeah. hey, why don't we just talk about <clears throat> we're going to eliminate the cap, the, uh, the the capital account surplus, and let's see how that plays. David, uh, as we sum up here, can you be comfortable in equities? You've done with Gluskin Chef this ability to to meld economics into equity markets. Can you own a portfolio of equities given all that's going on? You can certainly own a portfolio of equities, but the the menu is getting um, more limited, especially in North America. So I would say that, yes, you can. I think that in the United States, it's hard to come up with a real hardcore theme right now. I think it's a matter of, if you're in the U.S. right now, have special right. situations, value plays. Uh, I think that there's greater opportunities right now abroad, I would say specifically Japan, parts of Southeast Asia. And if this political discount starts to dissipate, which I think it will in Europe, that could be a very interesting place to be in the coming year. Okay. David Rosenberg, thank you so much with Gluskin Chef. Don't be a stranger. This is great. We were we only booked him so he and I could do a postmortem, <laughs> David, on David Curran, Montreal Canadiens. What see. a disappointment. I'm wearing my black band, so I mean, there you go. You know, I mean, we, we tried to get Tobias Lefkovich on over at Citigroup, and yeah. he's on medication. Corbett said he couldn't come on. You know, he just said, no way. <laughs> Tobias is just distraught. There's no other way to uh, put it. Michael Barr's looking at me like, what is this? The Detroit Tigers are killing it. What, did you know a couple of days ago? 19 to whatever? 
Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Nobody yeah. counts. <laughs> when you put 19 across, nobody counts the other side. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member SIPC.